Welcome to the study of the book of Revelation, taught by Michael Fitzgerald, senior pastor of Clifford Baptist Church. These lessons come from a Wednesday night study of the book, so the format is more of a classroom setting. Included in this Revelation series are written study notes which can be accessed with each lesson in the series. We are going to study God's Word together tonight. We are in the book of Revelation. If you haven't been with us for a while, we have been studying through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we are going to study tonight the entirety of chapter 17. This is a a little longer than usual. However, as I've studied chapter 17, there's really not a way to subdivide it that I can carry over from one sermon to the next week's sermon without a major break there. So I would like for us to look at the entirety of chapter 17 tonight. We are studying through this awesome book. The great majority of this book is of the future prophecy of this world's history. And this is basically, and this is on your sheet, this is what's happening. God is showing us how he ushers out the world scene as we know it and ushers in the kingdom of God. That's what we see happening in the book of Revelation. The world is going out. The kingdom of God is coming in. Now, we can study these future events with utter detachment. We can say, well, these events are far ahead of us and they're not going to happen anytime very soon. So we study them like we study a fictional tale, perhaps. However, this study has bearing on this day. Uh, It gives us perspective as to how we are to conduct ministry and how desperately this world needs Jesus Christ. It is true in the days of the Great Tribulation, which are still ahead of us, that the world is going to desperately need the Savior. But that is also true in this day and in this age, as we are ministers in this world, the world is desperate for the love and the salvation and the forgiveness of the Savior. Now, I believe that this is an absolute needed study, and tonight I want to give you three reasons that I believe this is so needed. This also is on your sheet. Reason number one that we absolutely need this study is because, very obviously, this is God's Word. Reason number one is very simple. This is God's Word. It tells us in Revelation chapter 1 that when we read this book of Revelation, we will be blessed in the simple reading of it. We need to study it because, number one, it is God's Word. We need to study it, number two, uh, because the rapture of the church and the commencement of the Great Tribulation is not some far-flung fictional tale, but rather the rapture of the church could happen in the next five seconds. What we're studying is history, but we also see that prophecy is history of the future. And so as we're studying the prophecy of God, we're looking at what is going to happen to the church in the very near future, I believe. As you have been with me through the Daniel study, I think one of the primary points of Daniel that we see revealed to us is that as time has passed on through all the kingdoms that are laid out in Daniel, we are at the end of Daniel's line. In that ancient prophecy, and today, tonight, as we study this great Word of God, we know that the rapture of the church could be very sudden, and it could be very, very soon. God alone knows the day and the hour of the rapture of His church. I want to remind you of this. If you want to write down this reference of Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus Himself tells us about 
uh, God's plan for the rapture. Jesus said, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So we don't know when the rapture of the church and the great tribulation and the closing of human history is going to happen, but I believe with all the evidence that we see in the Bible, it's going to happen soon. Now, my definition of soon could be five seconds, five years, ten years. We don't know, but we do believe as we see God unveiling history of the future that it's going to happen soon. Second reason, the rapture could be soon. The third reason that we study God's Word is this opens our eyes to the stark truth that every human being is going to meet God Almighty. The reason we study this Word is because it tells us that every person is going to meet God Almighty face to face. Every person will either stand before our God Almighty naked in unrighteousness, surrounded and clothed by the stain of their own lostness and sin. And in that scene, we know the Bible teaches us that hell is absolutely the outcome for the lost unbeliever. However, there's also the opportunity that we can stand before our God Almighty clothed in righteousness and forgiveness, surrounded by grace, which comes to us by way of the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He poured out His own blood to atone for our sin. He took my place on His cross. He took your place and the place of every person in this world on the cross, and it simply means we need to come to Him in faith and in belief and in trust. Every person is going to stand before God Almighty, but there's only two scenes of standing before Him, in lostness or in salvation. Revelation takes the guesswork out of that moment before God. You know, when I was a boy, I remember a story that my uncle told. He spent many years in the Navy. Uh, When he was a brand new recruit in the Navy, one day he had to go through, according to his story that I remember, he had to go through a bunch of exercises and drills that involved getting in the water. Uh, And one of those drills that he had to do with the rest of the recruits was to jump off of a board some 30 feet or so. Uh, I think this ceiling is about 35, 38 feet high. So some 30 feet he had to, to stand on a diving board and jump into the water. That was one of the drills. My uncle said he was deathly scared of water. I don't know why he went into the Navy. And scared of height. And so he was doubly scared because of that. So he was standing in line as the recruits were climbing that ladder, going up to that, uh, to that diving board up ahead. But as he stood in that one line waiting to go up, there was another line coming out. And somehow, unnoticed, my uncle, already wet from other exercises, slipped out of the up line into the out line. And he did not have to go through that test. He sidestepped the test. Tonight, I want to tell you this. Nobody is going to sidestep their time before God Almighty. That's what the book of Revelation promises. Well, tonight, we tackle a tough chapter, chapter 17. We're going to look at the entirety of this chapter tonight. Again, it's going to be just a little bit longer than a normal study. This, uh, this chapter has two main characters. This is on your sheet. Two main characters in this chapter, the Antichrist and a prostitute. Two characters in the chapter. Now, the prostitute, this woman of the night 
symbolizes a false, ungodly religion that is going to rise up in the days of the great tribulation. Now, whenever a prostitute is used in the symbolic nature in Scripture, it always describes false religion. It always describes people who have made an adultery out of the way that they worship because they're not worshiping the Lord God. Now, do you remember the Old Testament prophet Hosea? He is the first of the minor prophets. His book is right after the book of Daniel. God commissions Hosea to marry a prostitute. Why does God ask one of his very prophets, one of the very men of God, to marry a woman of the night? Well, just write down this reference, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, and this is what that verse says. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So God Almighty had his prophet Hosea marry a prostitute, symbolic of the way that the nation of Israel had prostituted themselves away from him as their Lord and their God. It's a symbolic relationship. So this woman in Revelation chapter 17 represents a religion that is removed far away from Jesus Christ. But this apostate church, which is going to arise in the latter part of the Great Tribulation, will become very powerful. This fake, false, fake church is going to become very profitable and populated with lost people. And the great problem is these lost people think that they are godly. They think that they're worshiping, however, they're in a false state of worship, far removed from God Almighty and from the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So tonight, we are going to read the entirety of chapter 17. Open your Bible, hear these words as they were penned by the Apostle John on the island of Patmos as God raised him up on a Sunday morning to see into the throne room of heaven. This is God's revealed word, and the Apostle John writes it down. Chapter 17, Revelation and there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou sawest was 
and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. May God add his blessing to the reading of this precious portion of his word in chapter 17. I remind you once again that though we may not understand every word that I have just read, Revelation 1-3 says you have been blessed because you and I have heard it together. Now, as we look a bit into this chapter, one of the seven angels that holds the seven bowls of God's wrath leads Apostle John to see a new, the word is prophecy, leads John to see a new prophecy. And here is the picture as John describes it in chapter 17. He sees a woman sitting on the beast, which is the Antichrist. Now, this adulterous woman has on rich clothing and fine jewelry, she is adorned in luxury and splendor and royalty. If you remember, one of the descriptions of her is that she's wearing purple, which is the color of royalty. She in some way has leadership in the world. Now, as an adulterous woman, she would lead people into adultery, into spiritual adultery. She would mislead the kings and the people of the earth away from God Almighty and into a false worship and an adulterous worship away from God. She then, this prostitute, symbolizes a false religion and kingdoms of the world are readily following her, readily falling to this false religion. Now, this false church is rich, and it is influential around the world. It has led multitudes away from Jesus Christ into this blasphemous religion that denies His Lordship. All the while, these people in this false church believe that they're in true worship, but they are not worshiping Jesus Christ, and therefore they are still very much lost. 
Now, according to Revelation chapter 17, verse 6, not only does this false church denounce Christ, it literally is killing Christians, people who represent Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. And I saw, remember, this is John, and I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Well, notice it says that this false religion is drunken with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. Now, what is the significance of this woman riding the beast, the Antichrist? This false church is going to have a very intimate connection with the Antichrist, the leader of the world. So he's in charge of political power. This church is in charge of false spiritual power. The Antichrist has united the world's nation in politics, and now he's using this false church to unite the world in this spiritual unity, but it's not a unity in Christ. It's a false unity. It's leading people away from Christ. Is that something new? Do we say, well, this is something that Satan has contrived for the great tribulations, never happened before. He puts up a false church, and people follow the false church. Is that true? Is it brand new? Heavens, no. Actually, it's all through the Bible. Take, for example, Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. He sets up this 90-foot idol in the plain of Dura. And he says, I want everyone, when you hear the music of my courts, to fall and worship the idol. So Nebuchadnezzar himself establishes a state false religion. And everyone was forced into worshiping a false god. And you remember, that's exactly why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ended up in a fiery furnace, because they would not fall in worship of that false god. But it was a state-mandated religion that was false. We see it happen in Daniel's day, 2,500 years before Christ is born. We see it happening now in the great tribulation in these days that are yet ahead of us. Satan's tricks are not brand new. He simply just reruns them over and over again. The apostate church is connected with the devil just as much as the real church is connected with Jesus Christ. Now, when John sees this prostitute riding on the back of the beast, the King James Version says that he looks at her and wonders with great admiration. Well, that doesn't mean what we think of when, when we think of admiration. It doesn't mean that John admires this unholy union, but rather he is astonished and he is sadly marveled by this picture that he sees coming uh, in the union of the Antichrist and a false church. The angel that is accompanying the Apostle John explains this picture of the adulterous woman riding on the beast. Look at the angel's words, verse 8, chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall descend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, and they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. So the angel says, the world's people are going to marvel uh, at the Antichrist because he was, he is not, and then he is to come. Do you remember the beast description about a wound that is going to take his life? Turn back with me to the chapter uh, 13, 
Keep your thumb in 17. Go back to chapter 13, verse 3. This is a word about what's going to happen to the Antichrist during his reign. Chapter 13, verse 3. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. Those words indicate to us that sometime during the Antichrist's reign, he's going to receive a deadly mortal wound, and it appears he dies, and then it appears that he is resurrected back to life, and all the people of the world marvel and are amazed. Now, I want you to remember, only Jesus Christ died on the cross and was resurrected from the grave. Jesus did receive a mortal wound. Jesus did die. Jesus was buried, and he was resurrected. Satan can only emulate through trickery. In 17, verses 9 through 11, the angel says, listen to this, John. It requires a mind of wisdom. The seven heads on the beast are seven mountains, and the great harlot of false religion sits on these seven mountains. Those, the, the number seven also stands for seven kings. According to the angel's words, five of those kings are gone. One king is still in control, and one king is yet to come. I believe those words describe seven great empires of world history. Now, as John wrote this, five of the empires had come and gone. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Assyrians, the Greeks. One empire still stands, the Roman Empire. We studied that in Daniel. And then also, one empire was yet to come, and that's the reign of the Antichrist. I want you to notice it says in verses 8 and 11 that the Antichrist's reign is going to be very short, his empire is going to be very brief, and he is going to end up in perdition. He's going to end up in hell. Now, look what happens when the Antichrist rules the world. Look at 17, verses 12 through 14. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdoms as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So when the Antichrist reigns, he's going to unite the kingdoms of the world. And what is the Antichrist going to do as he unites the kingdoms of the world? He's going to stir up hatred toward Jesus Christ. He's going to stir up worship of himself, worship of the Antichrist, and take people away from Jesus Christ as Savior. Also, you will notice in these words it says that the Antichrist is going to stir up the nations to make war against the Lamb of God, Jesus. He's going to stir up the nations to make war against the people of God, which is Israel. But again, this is a reference to Armageddon. Jesus is utterly going to destroy this uprising. When his divine time is exactly right, Jesus will destroy this uprising against him. Now, I'm almost done, but I'm not quite done yet. I know this is a tough chapter as we trudge through it tonight. 
you know that our relationship with Jesus is symbolized by the marriage contract. All marriages that we men and women have are symbolic of the marriage that we're going to have with Jesus. We will be the bride as he is the groom. That union between Jesus Christ and his people will never throughout all eternity be broken. However, that is not the case between the Antichrist and this prostitute. What you're going to see in the last verses of Revelation 17 is that while there was a connection between the Antichrist and the prostitute, false religion, at the end of the chapter, what you're going to see is a divorce. Their union is going to be broken. The Antichrist uses the prostitute till he doesn't need her anymore, and then he divorces her. He's going to get rid of her. Those are verses 15 through 18 that you can see that. The Antichrist has used the false religion. He's now going to get rid of her because he wants to be worshipped. He doesn't want anything else to be worshipped, so he's throwing out the false religion so he can point religion toward himself, so he can be the one who is worshipped. And the Antichrist, according to God's Word in Revelation 17, does five things to rid the world of the prostitute. Number one, Scripture says he's going to hate her. He's going to detest her. The honeymoon is over. Number two, he's going to make her desolate. In other words, the Antichrist will strip away all the power and all the beauty of this false religion. Number three, it says that the Antichrist will then make her naked. In other words, he's going to expose this false church's wickedness, and he's going to disgrace her. Number four, the Antichrist will devour her. Or he will kill her. Number five, he will burn her with fire so she will never rise again. So the Antichrist completely does away with this false religion. He once had a connection, but now he's divorced her and now he's killed her because he wants all the religion of the world to be pointed unto himself. Now, I believe at this point, the Antichrist will claim to be God. He will demand to be worshiped. Again, we think back to Daniel, just as Nebuchadnezzar demanded to be worshipped, the Antichrist will demand to be worshipped. Write this scripture down, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Listen to these words from Paul to the church at Thessalonica. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that a man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, that's the Antichrist, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So St. Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, the day is going to come when the Antichrist will set himself up as God. Again, another prophecy that we see going to be revealed and fulfilled. The Antichrist actually sets himself up in the temple of Jerusalem, and he says, I am God. And he calls the world to grovel at his feet. Now, finally, I want you to notice in verse 17 of chapter 17, it says that all of this upheaval and destruction and rebellion is by the wisdom of God. Isn't that interesting? As much as is happening on this earth, it is by the wisdom and power in God, of God. The Antichrist is just playing into God's holy and divine plan. The son of Satan, 
The Antichrist is just one step closer to hell. God is allowing the Antichrist to have enough leash to choke himself, to kill himself, to hang himself. The end of the Antichrist is indeed coming. Paul says in these days that we will see people who love pleasure and love things much more than they love God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says people will hold the form of religion, but they will deny the power of Jesus Christ. That's the religion of this day, denying Christ. In other words, people will take Jesus Christ out of the church. He will not be the Lord of the church. Here's my description of the church which denies the power of Jesus Christ. It certainly is ultimately going to be expressed in the great tribulation, but I believe that the church that denies the power and lordship of Jesus exists today. Here's a description, I believe, ultimately of the great tribulation, false religion, but also we might see some resemblance to this in what we are seeing in our American culture and in this world today. The church which denies Jesus quibbles and bickers with one another. There is no harmony within the church. There is an attitude of unforgiveness, and people avoid one another rather than worship together. The church which denies Jesus' power has a hierarchy of who is important in the church body. If you wear fancy clothes and if you have a big bank account, then that church member is more important than the one who doesn't have the fanciest of clothes or the biggest bank account. The denying church is much more concerned with the outward beauty of the church than the inward spirit of the church. The denying church emphasizes political correctness rather than radical forgiveness. The denying church never takes a stand on abortion. The denying church never takes a stand on families and how to keep families together. The denying church doesn't take a stand on living together outside of marriage, doesn't take a stand on homosexuality and what we see happening in our culture. The denying church, denying the power of Christ, will not take a stand in those issues. The denying church has a pulpit that's a, a, a place of pleasant stories and feel-good preaching rather than the entire preaching of the Word of God. Do we want Clifford Baptist Church to be a church of power and might and outreach and surrender to Jesus Christ? Do we want Clifford Baptist Church to be much, much more than lukewarm? Then we have to take the stand and stand on the Word of God and not back down and remain courageous and bold even in a place where we may be persecuted for it. Every time we meet, we're going to pray. Every time we meet, we're going to make a commitment that we're going to live by and stand on the Word of God. Every time we meet, we want to have preaching and teaching that is centered in this Word, every part of this Word. We want to lift up the Savior. We want Him to empower us. We want Him to set the footsteps that we are to follow. We want to bestow to our Savior our praise and our honor and our glory. Every time we worship, we should invite the lost to Jesus. 
You know, someone said to me a couple of years ago, every time I go to one of your funerals, I hear you give the invitation to Christ. I don't think that's the appropriate time to do that. And my reply to that, as, as humbly and as kindly as I could put it, is in every situation, there's probably someone who needs Jesus. And especially in a funeral situation, hearts are softer because there's loss, because we're looking at eternity. So every meeting, even NASCAR prayers, should have Jesus in them. That's a church that lifts up Christ. That's a church that does not deny his power and his glory. So tonight, as I close what I know was a lengthy and involved and hard study, and I know I, I hit the high spots. If we tore this chapter 17 apart, it would take us probably 50 sermons. But in just hitting the high spots, what is God teaching us? Clifford Baptist Church, it's not just in the great tribulation that the people of God need to take their stand. You need to take your stand today. You need to take your stand until I take you home. Whether it's by earthly death or rapture out of here, I'm kind of praying for the rapture out of here. But we're to take our stand and we're to be courageous, not deny the power of our Savior, but rather surrender to him and serve him in every way he calls us to serve. And I'm grateful to say over more than 30 years, I've seen a church growing in that. We haven't reached the pinnacle yet, but I've seen us growing in that. May we surrender to him to continue to grow. And tonight, if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, he is inviting you to come in this very moment to simply say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I am sorry for my sin. I repent of my sin and I ask you to be my Savior. I believe that you earned that right by going to the cross for me literally dying there, shedding your blood for me. I come to you as my Lord, and I come to you as my Savior. I ask you to adopt me into the family by your very blood, and through you, I am one in the kingdom of God with my Savior. If you've never done that, tonight is the night that you can make that eternal choice. Christian, tonight is the night that the Lord says to you and to me, take that good news out there into the world where there are so many dying people who cross our paths every day. You don't go where I go, and I don't go where you go, but the Lord has spread us out into this world with one message, and he asks every one of us to be faithful to the message and to stand on it and to offer it to those who need it.